0: Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we take a deep dive into all Thane's tanks. Today, we will continue our discussion about the Panther tank. However, we will be diving into the first variant of the Panther, the Osferong D, or simply the Panther D, as I will be referring to it throughout this episode. I will probably switch back and forth between Panther D, Aus D, or the early Panther. Just know that I am referring to the same vehicle, which was the debut production model of the Panther tank that hit the front lines in July of 1943, during Operation Citadel. The first model, or Ausführung, meaning execution, implementation, or model, was given the designation of D, or De in Deutsch. Why not A? A in Deutsch, like the previous Panzers, which followed a rather simple alphabetical order from you know A through Z in all the Panzers leading up to the Panther. Well, in short, a new policy came into effect in early March of 1942 to designate the different models based on the design engineering firm's names, such as the Panzerkampfwagen VI Ausführung H for Henschel. However. This means the first model of Panther ought to have been the Aus M for man, and not Aus D for the canceled Daimler It It is worth mentioning that the troops themselves never referred to their tanks by Aus If 1st platoon was issued Aus D Panthers, and 2nd platoon had some Aus A's and D's, it made no difference. They were both Panther platoons, or just Panzer platoons. The tank itself didn't necessarily matter to command, the troops, on the other hand, were quite happy to be in a new tank, but on the battlefield, they were simply armored units. There were the schwer or heavy panzer units which would have tigers and later king tigers in them, and jag panthers and jag tiger units. But remember, the panther was simply a medium tank, which they would later reflect in their t o e more on that later and Yes, I know I said medium. But you better believe I am rolling my eyes at that concept as much as anyone else. What matters here for our needs is that the designation of Aus D had meaning and importance to the maintenance crews as well as the engineering and design firms. And later, people like us future tank nerds. There has been plenty of speculation that choosing Aus D to begin the production run of the Panther rather than Aus A was an attempt at some sort of intrigue or guile. Because much like the Tiger E, Tiger H, the Panther followed a similarly erratic naming path with the Panther going from D to A to G, eventually to F, sort of. Um, it's been postulated that this was to throw off Allied intelligence services so that they would not know how far along the production models were, or if maybe there were you know, secret versions that the Allies had yet to see. Further speculation into the naming conventions of the Panther and most later model panzers that I've read about is giving the troops the brand new Aus-D allowed their nerves to ease knowing that they weren't beta testing the new tanks and instead were on the fourth or, you know, fifth iteration. I, I don't want to pour too much into the doubt bucket on these two revelations, but suffice it to say there isn't enough real evidence to lend any credence to these theories. The truth is probably just mundane engineering designations. There may well have been drawings for an original A, B, and C model, but the D model was ready first and thus went into production. Again, there is no evidence to suggest that this was the case, but it could have been something that simple. The truth is, the first production model of the Panther tank was known as Osferung D, and that's what we'll be going with. Since we've already gone into discussion of what was required from the design for the Panther, What did that actually look like once the first Panther Aus D rolled off of the line? The chassis armor, as described from original drawings and additional information from Thomas Jentz and Spielberger, for the chassis, we had a sloped upper glacis and nose plate for increased protection. It included a large rectangular plate flush with the roof in front of the turret, which would lie flat, and it was a large maintenance hatch that allowed the removal of the transmission and steering units without having to first remove the entire turret, which obviously would require much more work and thus time to take care of. Contained within this large rectangular plate, there were two hatches for the driver and radio operator to enter and exit the vehicle. They were of the pivoting variety, meaning simply they had to first be lifted up with an assisting spring and pivoted to allow a human body to pass through. There was another large rectangular hatch, also hinged, covering the rear deck and could also be removed for maintenance of the motor, cooling system, and fuel system. These two top deck plates were a huge step in overall ease of maintenance for the Panther, while other vehicles like the Tiger Tank that could require huge efforts to reach the inner working modules, such as removing the entire turret off of the vehicle before being able to access the transmission. The front of the chassis also contained quite a unique feature. For the machine gun port and the driver's vision port, there was an attempt to create a sort of solid front regarding the glacis plate, meaning the driver's vision port could be opened and closed. And when it was closed, the front armor no longer contained a hole, which could be a weak point for shell penetration. And the same thing goes for the MG port. It could be opened and closed as needed. However, this nifty little piece could become jammed with dirt, grit, or even bullet and shell damage, uh, in which case it it could become stuck and inoperable. The front glacis plate itself was 80 millimeters, or 3.14 inches thick, at 55 degrees, with a Brunel hardness rating of between 265 to 309. The front nose plate, the bottom section of the glacis that met the upper front plate, was 60 millimeters, or 2.36 inches thick, at 55 degrees. These were the two interweaved plates that connected in the front of the vehicle, a Brunel hardness rating of 265 to 309. The superstructure side plates were 40 millimeters or 1.57 inches thick at a zero degree vertical angle with a Brunel hardness rating of 279 and 324. The upper hull side plates were 40 millimeters Or 1.57 inches thick at 40 degrees with a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. The tail plates were also 40 millimeters thick or 1.57 inches at 30 degrees angle with a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. The top deck plate was 16 millimeters or 0.62 inches thick at 90 degrees horizontal With a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. The front belly plate was 16 millimeters or 1.18 inches thick at 90 degrees horizontal and it should be noted that in some drawings you will see the front belly plates with 30 millimeter plate. This is incorrect. The belly plates came in 16 millimeter increments and during production of the ALF-D these plates could be doubled or even tripled for a 16, 32, or 48 millimeter belly plate thickness to increase AT mine protection. And this, this itself did vary from firm to firm. And these belly plates were also a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. Finally, the rear belly plate was 16 millimeters or 0.62 inches thick at 90 degrees horizontal. With a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. Now we can move on to the turret. The turret roof was 16 mm or 0.62 inches thick at 84.5 degrees with a Brunel hardness rating of 309 to 353. The turret roof in the rear side was 16 mm or 0.62 inches thick at 90 degrees with a Brunel hardness rating of 309 to 353. The gun mantlet, that's the curved part in the very front where the cannon sticks out of, was 100 mm or 3.93 inches thick, curved and tapering, with the Brunel hardness rating of 235 to 276. The turret front itself was 100 mm or 3.93 inches thick at 12 degrees, with the Brunel hardness rating of 235 to 276. Turret sides were 45 millimeters or 1.77 inches thick at 25 degrees with the Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. Turret rear was 45 millimeters or 1.77 inches thick at 25 degrees with the Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. Finally, the commander's cupola was 60 millimeters or 2.36 inches thick, drum shaped with six vision ports that could be closed with 60 millimeter or 2.36 inches thick armor ring, a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. There was an emergency hatch in the rear of the turret behind the loader that was also 45 millimeters or 1.77 inches thick at 25 degrees with a Brunel hardness rating of 278 to 324. Um, I just want to add here that to produce and assemble all of these pieces took a total of 2,000 man hours to produce a single Panther take. That broke down to hull production, 55 hours, turret production, 38 hours, cannon production and assembly could take well over 1,100 hours, chassis assembly, 485 hours, turret assembly, 150 hours final assembly, 85 hours, An additional sanding, welds, paint, and various tasks, 87 hours, for a total of roughly 2,000 hours. What is Brunel hardness rating? Why does it matter? And who cares? Essentially, the Brunel scale is a way of expressing the hardness of a material, in our case, steel. But it can be defined as the resistance of a material to an applied pressure or force. Simple, right? What does this mean to us in this particular instance of Panzer Armor? How does a BHN, the Brunel Hardness Number or Rating, of 278 to 324 differ from 309 to 354? Well, there are a lot of things to take into consideration. Just because the number is higher does not necessarily mean it's better per se, because being too inflexible or harder leads to the armor becoming more susceptible to shattering but being too soft means the armor is easier to penetrate. There's got to be a happy medium. Well, sort of, because the BHN only tells part of the story. Remember, not all armor is the same. There's rolled homogenous armor, there's cast armor, and there's riveted armor. There are obviously going to be pros and cons to each of them, so why don't we just get into it? Making armor during this period was, and in many ways still to this day, is a very complicated process that requires seriously skilled labor, lots of industry know-how, along with steel mills with the proper machine tools, and particular resources to create the required alloys like chromium, nickel, molybdenum, manganese, boron, silicon, and zirconium, to name a few. Resources, I might add, that Germany did not possess in the vast quantities required for the war she now found herself in an oversight, to be sure. When it comes to the perfect armor, you'll want to consider a few areas of importance and try your best to round them all out. Firstly, you want your armor to be very hard in order to shatter or deform incoming projectiles by reflecting enough of the incoming projectile's energy back onto itself, thereby diffusing the kinetic energy. This was especially relevant earlier in the war when most of the belligerent nations fired solid shot as their primary armor piercing or AP round. Secondly, you're going to want this very hard armor to also be soft, sort of spongy or elastic, flexible but sturdy. Why would soft armor be good? Well, soft armor, and really, when I use the word soft, what I mean is flexible. The armor has to have some give. This was primarily to spread out or dissipate the energy of an impact over a larger area without the armor failing. If you create an armored plate that is too hard, it becomes brittle and prone to cracking or shattering, which can become a problem in the form of spalling. Spalling is best described as metal fragments that have been broken off of the armor after an impact and acts like shrapnel. This is especially alarming considering human beings are bags of squishy flesh, meaning a non-penetrating hit, could lead to a significant emotional event by way of spalling on the interior of the tank. So, this means that you have to have both of these qualities in your armor, but how much of each? Well, this balance was achieved by a way of face-hardening, especially for the early war German armor, the outside of the plate, allowing for a face-hardened outer layer and a softer, more flexible inner layer. This wasn't done throughout the war, And by the time the Panther tank came about, the practice was all but done away with, with the exception of the very early production of the Panther tank. Generally speaking, German armor throughout the war would ditch face hardening. As the thickness of German plate increased, they would end up relying more on the depth or volume of armor for stopping rounds by using a softer steel to achieve mm, decent results. This had two effects one being that dropping the face hardening application process cut down on the man hours needed to produce a particular tank, and two, it required less tungsten-tipped tools used to cut hardened armor. Softer armor is easier to cut or file into the desired shapes. So now that we know a little bit more about what we want out of our armor, let's take a look at the three main categories of armor available during the Second World War. Let's start with riveted armor, or bolted armor, which uses rivets and bolts to secure smaller armored plates together on a skeleton or frame of the vehicle in question. Riveting is fairly straightforward and does not require skilled artisans or immense steel mills or gigantic oil baths. With riveted plate armor, it's very straightforward hard work and can be taught to basically anyone in a relatively short amount of time. Riveted armor is quite strong, small plates of armor are much easier to create with uniform qualities, which includes things like the grain, thickness, toughness, hardness, and can be done so in a shorter amount of time rather than larger plates, which require more fine tuning and increasingly skilled metalworking. Small plates riveted or bolted together to make a much larger, stronger structure, Was a leading advantage to riveting armor armor of this type is also easy to repair or replace any plate that has been damaged or penetrated can easily be replaced in the field in a short amount of time one plate got smashed by an incoming round no problem just pull it off the vehicle and rivet a new one in its place so long as nothing vital inside the tank was destroyed and by vital, we mean the tank's own mechanisms like the steering, transmission, or motor, human beings don't necessarily fall into this category, for they are easily replaced, meaning a battle-damaged tank could be quickly put back into action. Thus, tanks made of riveted armor are cheaper to produce, both in terms of cost and skill when it comes to production and assembly, not to mention in the 1930s, The amount of machine shops available to produce this kind of plate would have been more readily available than the complex mills required for casting or rolling armor, which we'll get to shortly. You must be asking yourselves if all the above is true, what possible drawbacks were there with producing vehicles with this type of armor? I'm glad you asked. Some of the glaring disadvantages may not be apparent at first, but let's drill down on some of them. Weight was a huge factor. An armored fighting vehicle design. Remember, your armor needs to be able to maneuver both in tactical combat and strategic positioning. Your 100-ton behemoth may be impenetrable, but how are you ever going to get it to the battlefield? And once there, how will it maneuver into an advantageous fighting position? Granted, a 100-ton tank is hyperbolic. My point with all of this is that a frame required to hold armored plates and their rivets can be heavy it all adds weight. It wasn't a huge issue for smaller vehicles like the Panzer 35T or 38T of Czech origin, uh, just like the US-made M2 and M3 tanks, or even the Italian tank Ets. As an aside, Italy used riveted armor throughout the war, due mainly in part to their poor industrial capacity and low-quality steel manufacturing plants. But, as the scale of armored vehicles increased the weight of all of those rivets and the structural framework required to actually bolt them on, it adds up and becomes a disadvantage. According to Spielberger, the framework or skeleton needed to support riveted plate armor increased the overall weight of the vehicle by 5-10%, to 10%, which is a lot considering that framework does not contribute to the protection of the vehicle, it really is only a detractor. On top of weight concerns, thousands of rivets, which could not be produced in the same strength as the plates they were bolting down, would be vulnerable to incoming shellfire. The armor plate itself could possibly withstand a direct hit, but the stress that energy places upon the weaker rivets could cause them to shear off, fail, or ultimately create extra spalling within the tank, causing casualties to both the crew and the vital mechanisms within the tank. It would not be until about 1932 when the Germans discovered a way of creating a shellproof, and I say that in quotes, a shellproof seam welding technique that allowed them to create holes of steel sheets welded together. I want to note here that Germany did not produce any armored fighting vehicles with rivets. They did, however, acquire plenty of foreign made armored fighting vehicles, the Panzer 35 and 38T were outstanding examples which used this early method of armored construction. Next, we'll move on to casting armor. Casting can be defined as, quote, an object made by pouring molten metal or other material into a mold, end quote. Thank you, Oxford Dictionary. It's really as simple as that. However, casting a ring to wear on one's hand is a much less complex process than, say, casting, I don't know, A sword, or in our case, a tank hull, or turret for that matter. The process remains similar in theory. However, the larger the casting, the more room for errors and inconsistencies. Not to mention, casting something as large as an entire hull of a tank will require much larger facilities to produce and to maintain, not to mention the immense quantities of raw materials and the ability to feed these materials into the casting facilities. Industry logistics are as important to the front lines, if not more important, than the vehicles they're producing for battle. The main advantage to casting armor is that the armor can be easily molded into various shapes, allowing for curved areas and specific thicknesses. A prime example of this would be the M4A1 Sherman, or the French H35, R35, and S35 tank. The S35 was actually cast in four parts. Another prime advantage to casting holes is that the armor was often soft, non-brittle, and still strong and hard, which would help in defending against incoming armor-piercing shells, increasing the odds of a glancing blow or even a bouncing shot. Early in the war, German AP rounds were generally solid shot and not yet capped rounds. We'll get into ammunition types further along down the road, so just hold tight. Casting hulls and turrets also allows for more curves on the AFV, which results in less exterior surface area for the same volume enclosed. These same curves distribute energy and thus stress better than that of sharp corners and boxy frames. This is important to our story because although the Germans did not cast any hulls or turrets, they did in fact cast turret mantlets, like that of the Panther. Which was curved and rather thick. However, as with all things during this stage of armored science, casting came with its own set of inherent disadvantages. The first and foremost being with casting such large structures like a tank, hull, or turret is that the physical nature of the molten metal being poured into the mold at the foundry will have inconsistencies throughout. Inconsistencies that cannot, at least at the time, Be controlled by the foundry operators. The process leads to the grain structure of the metal itself being uncontrollable, leading to casting cavities and impurities. Uneven cooling during the quenching process, that is to say, the heat treating of the metal, can create weak points within the armor that would be unknown to the end user until it was too late, i.e., a penetration or failure. Furthermore, Armor that has been cast can be nearly impossible to repair once it had been badly damaged or penetrated. Though there were workarounds, welded plate or riveted plate had the upper hand in ease of repairs in this regard. The initial heavy investment for such foundries capable of casting large whole portions and entire turrets was fairly high. However, once they had been set up, the mass production savings was incomparably low to the sort of Handmade tanks like those in German service, like the Panther or Tiger. Finally, we'll get to welded armor. Welding of armored plates to one another to form the structure of the tank became the standard way of producing tanks as the war continued on. Remember, Germany only welded their tanks together, having come up with the perfect weld in 1932. Other nations would have to catch up as things progressed. I would like to note that although welding became more and more common amongst the other belligerents, the Soviet Union and the United States never truly gave up on casting, and for the most part, T-34s and M-4 Shermans had cast turrets and a lot of cast holes between them. Welding plates carried quite a few advantages. Uh, It was lightweight, could be done fairly quickly, and welding itself didn't require too much training to become adequate. And if you look at some of the mid-war T-34 tanks, um, their welds are ugly as sin, but they held together for as long as they needed to, and that's really what mattered, at least to them. What about the armored plate itself? Well, the metal used for casting and RHA, or rolled homogenous armor, is created from the same ingot. However, going from ingot to tank, the two take very different paths. Earlier... I stated that when casting, the physical properties of the armor, once it's poured, is hard to control. However, the R in RHA stands for rolled, which is what was done to create flat, large plates. The ingot itself could be cold rolled, or more than likely hot rolled, between two or more rollers to produce a much more uniform armored plate and all the properties like thickness, hardness, and grain structure. According to Thomas Jenst and uh, Walter Spielberger, as well as the findings from the US Army, RHA plates were about 10 to 15% better than cast armor in absorbing shock and defying penetration. To compensate for that, however, nations that use castings could, and oftentimes would, increase the depths and volume of their cast armor to essentially match the equivalent in rolled homogeneous armor. In regards to the disadvantages that welded RHA plates come with, they're not as glaringly obvious as riveted or cast armor. Um, Welding is far superior to riveted plates as the welds themselves, if done correctly, could produce seams that were far stronger than the plate themselves. However, riveted plates could be face hardened more easily as bolting them onto a frame did not stress them as much. Whereas, face-hardening a plate to weld could buckle the plate during the process. Welding, especially quality welding, did require a more skilled laborer to produce the desired results and thus was time-consuming. Essentially producing the armored fighting vehicle by hand, it consumed many more man-hours than simply casting whole pieces or bolting them together. Though as we have noted before, the thicker the plate's The more difficult it becomes to work with them and gain uniformity. This leads us back to the original sidetrack of the Brunel hardness numbers. Remember, armor under 375 BHN is considered machinable. The harder the steel becomes, the more difficult it becomes in cutting and filing into shape, until you eventually reach the point where the armor resists cutting completely. Tungsten carbide tools in lieu of non-existent at the time, diamond tip tools, were able to machine higher BHN steel, but tungsten was an incredibly difficult resource to source for many nations, notably Germany, whose mind could not be entirely made up. Do they use tungsten for machining or shooting? Tungsten was heavy and allowed for better penetrating armor-piercing rounds. I promise we'll go into the different types of shot as soon as we get there. There were methods available to increase the strength of RHA plates, such as face hardening, as described earlier, but this plate was notably only used on smaller, lighter Panzers, like the Panzer III and Panzer IV, due to the heat treatment, which could cause curling edges, and thus required cold rolling, which tended to wind up the stress in the plate until being relieved catastrophically by the impact of an incoming round. It is my speculation that face hardening applique plates used on the later models of the aforementioned Panzer three and four led to an extension of their service life, especially along the eastern front, where forty five millimeter and fourteen and a half millimeter at weapons would be much more prevalent in using uncapped AP rounds against those lighter panzers I'm not sure what I would say is the absolute best armor available, welded versus cast, however, I would note. As the war carried on, welded plate became better and better due to lessons learned in manufacturing and combat. It should also be noted that casting was never completely done away with, especially with the Allies' production. Not to mention, the Germans continued to cast their mantlets on several of their panzers. After the war, the German specifications for their BHN, uh, as noted in 1945, For their 85 to 200 millimeter plate armor, the BHN was between 300 and 350. For their 55 to 80 millimeter armored plate, it was 250 to 290 BHN. Their 35 to 50 millimeter armored plate had a 300 to 350 BHN, but this armor was generally, at least noted here, that it was face hardened to about 450 to 600 BHN on the face of the armor. These figures all jive with the above reporting of the Panther BHN levels. As another aside, because who doesn't love a good side? According to Robert Livingston, the US armor manufacturing developed similar specifications by the end of the war. He also notes, along with the US Army in technical report number 23 dated 14 September 1944 and another dated 10 March 1945, that the panther glacius, the front slopes plate, had increasingly problematic metallurgy, resulting in the presence of bainite, a crystalline form of steel within a layer of the plate, think of it like plywood, which resulted in complete failures when otherwise there should not have been. There are photos of panthers that have been destroyed, which look like somebody cracked them open like a hard-boiled egg. Some of these were popped with large caliber HE shells like the Soviet 152mm, but the way the armor has cracked is indicative of the presence of bainite in the armor. We'll have to put a pin in the metallurgy conversation, at least for now, because there are a lot of changes in the situation that will happen from where we are in the story now, which is January of 1943, through to the end of the war. Now that we know a bit more about the armor of the Panther tank, and basically the shortest, longest story about the history of armor plating in general, how did the big cat move around on the battlefield? The engine that was developed and produced by Maybach for the Panther tank was a liquid-cooled 12-cylinder V-type combustion engine, the type HL210P30, later upgraded to the HL230 P30 engine, which required the cylinders of the HL210 to be bored out further, increasing the power of the HL210 21-liter gasoline engine to the formidable and eventually quite reliable HL230 P30 23-liter gasoline engine. The HL230 P45 engine, another variant of this same motor, was used in the much heavier Tiger I and Tiger II tanks, along with the Jagd Panther and Jagd Tiger tank destroyers. As an aside, the HL-210 motor initially developed for the Panther was installed to many of the initial run of the Panther tanks, though they were very quickly upgraded and refitted with the better-performing and more robust HL-230. The engine was also originally to be produced of lightweight alloys to reduce the overall weight. Due to shortages of material, gray cast iron was used instead for the engine block and aluminum alloys being used in the construction of the pistons. The rigorous testing usually required for such complicated things, like a brand new engine required to power a whole tank, well, that was simply not in the timetable. And these failings would all have to be learned on the fly and oftentimes on the battlefield. Production rates of the HL 230 were acceptable, with production output exceeding 1,000 engines per month or one engine every 25 minutes, and by the end of the war, Maybach and other subsidiaries had produced 140,000 engines. The engines were rated for 600 to 700 horsepower at 3,000 rpm, a wallproof requirement while engine power-to-weight ratio was rated, at least while equipped on a Panther, at 15.5 horsepower per ton, falling a bit short of the 20 horsepower per ton that was hoped for, and quite short of the 22 horsepower per ton that the troops had demanded. The Panther, compared to its contemporaries, fares about equal to the T-34-85 variant, which had a 16.25 horsepower per ton, and the M4 Sherman had 15.8 horsepower per ton. Just remember, the Panther had to move 45 tons of steel. The T-34 and M4 Sherman did not require as much power to get moving. The engine itself was quite compact for its time, weighing only 1,200 kilograms or 2,645 pounds, Uh, dimensionally, it was 1,000 by 1190 by 1310 millimeters, about 130 centimeters cubed, or approximately 39 by 47 by 52 inches, about 52 inches cubed, which according to Spielberger and Jens, was only nominally larger than the HL120 engine used in both the Panzer III and Panzer IVs. This allowed the engine compartment of the Panther to require only minimal space within the tank. This effectively allowed over 60% of the internal space within the tank to be used as the fighting compartment, which would include the crew, ammunition, the cannon, and radio equipment. I know we discussed the waterproof nature of the Panther's engine compartment briefly in the previous episode, but Walter Spielberger really dives into some of the minutiae, which I found quite interesting. In his book, Panther and its variants, which, for what it's worth, does contain some outdated information. However, his technical descriptions come directly from plans and blueprints, and I feel they are reliable. Spielberger describes the cooling system as such, quote, the equipment used for regulating the temperature of the engine coolant and the transmission fluid could be shut off for underwater travel. The radiators, the fans, and the air passages were separated from the engine compartment, and water tight. He goes on. When the Panther was traveling submersed, the fans were shut off and the space was flooded. End quote. This flooding of the engine is how it kept the engine cool without the fans running. I think it's quite interesting that the engine compartment, well a part of it at least, could become fully submerged indefinitely. According to the engineers, anyway. This was done to allow the Panther to ford most rivers up to a depth of about 1.9 meters or 6 feet 2 inches, a far cry from what was initially required of 4 meters or 13 feet fording abilities. That said, this was not fully realized in the first run of the Panther D. What this meant was that the first 50 Panthers could be delivered without the necessary submersible equipment Based on an agreement the firms made with Oberst Thomas from Watt 6, he essentially wanted to get the tanks to the troops, um, but he insisted that once available, the snorkel and other submersible equipment was to be delivered and installed as soon as possible. During submersion testing in July of 1943, numerous leaks were found as some of the seals in the engine compartment were not properly designed and would have to be reworked. To ease the strains on production, The required depth of submersion from 4 meters to 1.9 meters was reworked so that only the seals and gaskets on openings in the hull were installed, instead of the complete waterproofing of the vehicle, though this requirement was in part deleted because it had been proven that the standard 16-ton engineering bridge could in fact support the weight of the Panther, making most of this requirement somewhat redundant and time-consuming to maintain. I do wish to point out here that in my opinion, and remember, take that with a grain of salt, that this sort of hyper-focusing on particular elements of what the Panther ought to be able to do led to problems down the road that perhaps could not have been anticipated, but it's sort of a pattern. Pushing so hard for a waterproofing design forced bottlenecks in production. It created a number of hazards that will be fully realized once the Panther enters combat such as oil and gasoline pooling within the engine compartment because it is waterproof, leading to several engine fires and losses of both man and materiel. 45 tons. 45 tons. That's a number that I believe is far too abstract, and I want you, the listener, to maybe visualize what 45 tons really looks like. 45 tons is roughly 99,280 pounds. For instance, An African elephant, the big ones, weigh in on average about 13,000 pounds or 5.89 tons. So a panther weighs about as much as eight elephants? Maybe it's it's been a while since you've seen an elephant up close. How about a Ford F-150 pickup truck or any other full-sized pickup truck driving about on the roads? I'm sure you've seen one of those in the last day or two. Those driving around weighing at about mm, two and a half tons or... 5,500 pounds. Again, doing some turkey math, not a math pod, a panther tank weighs as much as 18 Ford F-150 pickup trucks. If elephants and trucks don't help you to visualize, perhaps the great equalizer, bananas. There are generally four bananas to a pound, so that comes to 24,802 bananas in this horrible analogous math equation. My point being, the panther tank was a heavy son of a bitch. And with all of that weight and engine power, how do we get the damn thing moving? How does the power produced by the engine make it to the final drive and move that sprocket to pull those treads to roll those wheels? Enter the firm Zahnradfabrik Friedrichshafen. I want to remind my listeners, my German is nowhere near perfect, so apologies for murdering these names and my awful accent. This undertaking was led by Graf von Söden, and Dr. E.H. Mayer, focused further by inspection der Panzertruppen, who stressed a simple manual transmission with as few gears as possible. At the time, both Maybach designed semi-automatic and automatic gearboxes, the Vario-Rex and Olvar, were very expensive to produce and to maintain. Things like material quality, ball bearings, construction time, and expertise in maintenance to list just a few things, these things were not ready to be sustained by the Reich's current and future economy. Outside of these two non-options, there were basically no other transmissions available in the required size, nor was there anything suitable to provide the required drive power. What was the solution? Manual, a manual transmission. Now, I'm not sure how many of my listeners have operated, currently operate, Or will ever operate a manual transmission, but my very first driving experience was on such a device. Albeit on a much smaller and lighter vehicle, my father's 1968 Volkswagen Bug, but what I'm trying to convey here is that with a manual transmission, there is some physical force required to shift into and out of gear. Yes, it's not some world's strongest man event, you're not literally shifting the weight of the vehicle itself, but there is a physical requirement. The driver is pushing the shifter into gear manually, though I will recognize there is a huge difference between shifting the gears in a 3 quarters of a ton Volkswagen Beetle and that of a 45-ton Panther tank. Zonrad Fabrik Friedrichshafen, ZF for short, decided upon a multiplate disc clutch and hand-operated gear shift. Pushing for the simplest gearbox that they could fathom due to concerns over maintenance, Graf von Soden even noting in 1942 that Panzer transmissions ought to be of the, quote, absolute most simple construction, end quote. (laughs) Of the several drafts laid out, ZF finally settled upon their triple shaft design known as the AK-7-20 transmission, designed and brought to the production line from February of 1942 to August of the same year. An incredibly short span of time, like all things Panther, it was rushed and meant to keep costs low for mass production. The ZF design met both of those requirements, albeit with some teething problems. And yes, this is going to come up a lot in this series, but for the most part, this transmission would serve the Panther throughout the lifetime of the vehicle. This transmission itself was rated for a top speed of 55 kilometers an hour, 34 miles an hour, though not ideal for a vehicle this heavy, Keeping the production cost and maintenance costs down was of higher priority due to the demand that the Panther be produced in large numbers to replace the current Panzers on the field as quickly as possible. Keeping with our miserly, the cheaper the better theme, in regards to the subsystems of the Panther tank, the steering system would be no exception. Instead of using the same and quite well-regarded, liked, and reliable double-radius epicyclic steering unit found on the Tiger tanks of Henschel design. Instead, man, by force of their own choice of a front-drive tank, was to use the single-radius steering found on the likes of the Czech-born Panzerkampfwagen 38T. The T in 38T it denotes the country of origin. The German word for Czechoslovakia begins with the letter T, hence Panzer 38T. This type of steering, it permitted a large turn radius using epicyclic gearing to reduce the speed on one side of the vehicle and tighter turns by disengaging and applying the brake to the track on the inside of the curve. This was an improvement over the quite simple uh, brake and clutch steering, think tractor style. Though it was not quite as smooth or effective as the double radius steering, again, it was cheaper and faster to produce and maintain and the double radius steering mechanism found on the Tiger tank. And again, the Tiger was not going to be built in any massive numbers like the Panther was envisioned. All right, so we've got our Maybach power plant, our less than ideal ZF manual transmission, our simplified single radius steering system with clutch and brake assist. We have finally come down to the linchpin of the entire powertrain system. And I'll just go ahead and say it, the weakest point of the entire design the double spur final drive. This design failed to be strong enough to withstand the forces produced by the Panther, especially when turning and using the Cloud disc brake during tight curves and emergency steering. The use of epicyclic gearing for the final drive hinged upon a bottleneck in the gear cutting machinery used to produce the hollow gearing. This fact, coupled with the lack of high-quality steel required for the gears to withstand such forces sustained during turning, led to multiple failures that ultimately would plague the Panther till the end of the war. According to Spielberger in Panther and its Variants, the steering mechanism worked as such. Quote, In order to facilitate steering through tight turns, each track could be halted by a solid disc brake. Once the support brake had been released and the steering clutch disengaged. Also, by releasing the support brake, a single center gear could be set into motion from the control drive via a control clutch and spur gear against the main drive's direction of rotation. The affected track would be slowed down and the tank would then make a single arc of a fixed radius for every gear engaged, hence the term single radius steering. Due to the immense weight, and the relatively high speed of the Panther, conventional brakes were just not going to cut it. Thus, Dr. Clow designed a new disc brake and he named it the Clow Brake, which uh, this was used to arrest the tracks when turning in a tight radius. Without getting too technical to confuse both yourself and myself, suffice it to say that this new brake had a U-shaped ring providing more surface area, which reduced the wear of the brake lining and rings which allowed for the heat buildup to be bled off. Um, And this, this allowed the brakes basically to stop the Panther and keep the brakes themselves from just deteriorating much too quickly. This is all well and good, but if steering levers or brakes are handled incorrectly or in an emergency situation in a manner which put too much stress on the brakes or steering mechanisms, a great amount of the momentum could build up and the stress could and would in a lot of instances Cause the weak gear teeth or the undersized final drive to fail. This is where the decisions to choose a single radius steering mechanism over the double radius steering rears its ugly head. All of this braking while turning business simply was not done by way of the double radius system. Tiger tanks, which were larger and heavier, did not require this kind of braking whatsoever during their turns and thus reduced the stress and wear. To their final drives and supporting systems realistically this problem was mitigated primarily by adequate training and hours of experience like that of a veteran which unfortunately for the reich will never have enough oil time manpower or vehicles available to make adequate training a standard policy thus dooming the panther to this shortcoming throughout its entire lifespan there were some attempts at improving the final drive, up to the point of even offering up a prize for any firm that was capable of improving on this design. The general consensus stood that without better machinery and steel, the gear teeth would virtually guarantee failures at some point or another, due to the weak mountings and relatively low strength of the teeth themselves. The only proposition that held any weight in regards to being successful was an epicyclic gear system with a final reduction drive using planetary gears. But again, shortages in material and machine-cutting facilities scratched this idea from ever seeing a production Panther. Only in some testing phase was this ever actually considered. In the end, the performance of the Panther, at least in a testing environment, was as follows. It had a max speed of 54.9 kilometers an hour, or 34 miles an hour, Later regulated to 45.7 kilometers an hour, or 28 miles per hour, with an average speed of 30 to 35 kilometers an hour, 18 to 21 miles an hour. The radius of action on the road was 200 kilometers, or 124 miles. The radius of action cross-country, that is to say off-road, was 100 kilometers, or 62 miles. It had a turning radius of 4.7 to 79 meters or 15.5 to 259 feet. It could cross a trench of 2.5 meters, or 8 feet. It had a fording depth of 1.9 meters, or 6 feet. The step climbing was 0.9 meters, or 2.9 feet. The gradient climbing ability was 35 degrees. It had a ground clearance of 0.56 meters, or 1.8 feet. The ground pressure was 0. 73 kilograms per cubic centimeter, or 1.6 pounds per cubic centimeter, a power-to-weight ratio of 15.5 horsepower per ton, with the Maybach HL-230 P-30 improved engine. Remember, back in last episode, one of the hardline factors of Guderian's Panzer Army, uh, they required a bigger and better gun in the new fighting vehicle, something high-velocity and capable of punching through the Soviet T-34 and KV-series tanks. Well, introducing the Rheinmetall Borsig AG-designed and produced 7.5-centimeter KWK-42 L-70 Kampfagen-Kanon-42. Uh, the L-70 was the barrel length in calibers, meaning the barrel was 525 centimeters long, or 5.25 meters or 17 and a quarter feet long. In the book Germany's Panther Tank: The Quest for Combat Supremacy by Thomas Jens, he gives a brief summary of armored fighting power and the key points to being successful. Fun fact, Ryan Rheinmetall still exists today and has helped with the research, development and production of the cannon used in quite a few modern tanks, the M1 Abrams along with the Leopard 1 and 2. That the German Bundeswehr uses to this day, to name a few. Quote, the effectiveness of firepower that can be delivered by the main gun is dependent upon the penetration ability of the armor-piercing rounds, inherent accuracy of the gun, characteristics of the gun sights, and ability to get quickly and accurately on target. End quote. I like this particular description of uh, effective firepower by Jens because it sums up exactly what these vehicles purpose was to bring the cannon to bear on the enemy, while also making it clear that in order to be successful at this task, your armored fighting vehicle has some requirements. It's not just about armor, speed, and the gun. If you cannot locate your target, or get an accurate sight reading, or know that the round you're firing is going to land where you want them to, then the advantage lies with your opponent. According to experts such as Steven Zaloga, and his book, Panther vs. Sherman, quote, the study, a reference to the 1954 U.S. Army Ballistic Study data on World War II tank engagements involving the U.S. 3rd and 4th armor Divisions, concluded that the single most important factor in tank versus tank fighting was which side spotted the enemy first, engaged first, and hit first, end quote. In another publication, written post war by H.G.G., G., of the Army Operational Research Group, a survey of tank warfare in Europe from D-Day to 12 August 1944, the conclusion is written plainly along several tables and data sheets that, quote, thus on 77% of occasions success attended the side which fired first, end quote. I know that last one was just riveting, but it takes what I've surmised and with proven data points to at least some evidence that this is a true statement. Not that it has been disputed in any meaningful way, but in my opinion, pokes some holes in the idea of having the best tank versus simply having the good enough tank on any given fighting day. Calling any tank the best tank is extremely subjective anyway, but it does come up too often in conversation when discussing tanks during the war. Wait, you're telling me you don't often have discussions with your friends over the merits of such and such tank versus such and such tank? Huh, just me. Okay, no wonder I've started a podcast about armored fighting vehicles. I think I've realized my friends and family are sick of hearing me ramble on, but not you, right? Kidding aside, let's look into what made the KWK-42 L-70 cannon from here on out referred to as the KWK-42 or L-70, and I'm sure I'll switch back and forth, such a formidable cannon. Generally speaking, for killing tanks, a gunner will want to fire an armor-piercing round. Well, what constitutes an armor-piercing round? What about an HE round? Well, let's let's go over the different types and figure that out. Armor-piercing rounds, or AP rounds, are rounds without ballistic or armor-piercing caps. They may include an HE or high-explosive burster, the most common round early in the war, which was used by all nations. Next, we have armor-piercing with armor-piercing cap, AP plus APC, also known as APC rounds where a cap is designed to reduce shatter tendencies against face-hardened armor and increase the ensuing penetration. These caps were also promoted to reduce shatter against rolled homogenous armor. Projectile caps reduce homogeneous armor penetration due to energy absorbed by the impact. APC is usually solid shot used by British and Americans. Armor-piercing capped ballistic cap, or APC-BC, Is a round which is used to reduce shatter and ballistic cap to reduce wind resistance and increase penetration at range. May include a high explosive burster used by the British, Americans, and Germans. Armor piercing composite rigid or APCR. The APCR projectile has a core of high density hard material such as tungsten carbide surrounded by a full bore shell of a lighter material like aluminum alloy. However, the low sectional density of the APCR resulted in high aerodynamic drag resulting in poor performance over long distances, used by all nations. High explosive, or HE rounds, rely more on blast and are usually detonated on impact or with a timed or chemical fuse. Their armor-piercing capabilities are somewhat limited and they are used mainly against soft targets. Lightly armored vehicles and buildings used by all nations. Finally, we have the high explosive anti tank or heat rounds, which is a type of shape charge explosive that uses the Munro effect to penetrate heavy armor. The warhead functions by having an explosive charge collapse a metal liner inside the warhead into a high velocity superplastic jet. This superplastic jet is capable of penetrating steel armor to a depth of seven or more times the diameter of the charge. This jet's effect is purely kinetic in nature. The round has no explosive or incendiary effect on the target, used by all nations, but in quite limited numbers and in scope. However, handheld AT infantry weapons like the Piat and the Panzerschreck did use heat rounds to quite an effective degree. There are a few other types of tank rounds, but they are for the most part modern inventions like the Sabo round or the Hesh round or Squash round, something that we will discuss, but in another series at a later date. So what kind of ammunition did the Panther use? The primary anti-armor round was the Panzergranate 39-42, PZGR 39-42 for short, I guess, which was an APCBC-HE type round. The projectile itself weighed 7.2 kilograms or 15 pounds, while the round in total weighed 14.3 kilograms or 32 pounds. The round length was 839 millimeters or 2 feet and 11 inches. The muzzle velocity for the Panzergranat 39/42 was 935 meters per second or 3070 feet per second. It contained 18 grams of RDX explosive filler the high explosive part of the round with a maximum range of 9850 meters or 32316 feet when fired out of the KWK 42 a secondary and generally only used for extremely heavy tank encounters due to the shortages of tungsten carbide available was the Panzergranata 40/42 HK round which was an APCR type round In German, the word is Hartkernmunition, or HK for short, which indicates that it has a hard core, like tungsten carbide. The projectile itself weighed 4.75 kilograms, or 10.5 pounds, and in total, the round weighed 11.55 kilograms, or 25.5 pounds. The round length was 875 millimeters, or 2 feet and 10 inches. The muzzle velocity for the Panzergranate 40-42 was 1,130 meters per second, or 3,700 feet per second, with a maximum range of 9,850 meters, or 32,316 feet. Finally, the soft target round used was the Sprenggranate 42, which was the high-explosive round. The projectile weighed 5.74 kilograms, or 12.5 pounds, and the round in total weighed 11.14 kilograms, or 24.5 pounds. The round length was 929 millimeters, or 3 feet and a half inch. The muzzle velocity for the Spreng 42 was 700 meters per second, or 2,300 feet per second. The Panther Aus D, which could carry 79 rounds for the main gun, had a shell distribution of usually 50 50 APC. BC to HE rounds, with a few of the APCR rounds sprinkled in if available. Ammunition was stored in various places throughout the Panther tank, and there are several diagrams portraying the exact position of where the ammo was stored. 40 rounds were stored horizontally in the panniers along the superstructure sides, 36 rounds were stored vertically in bins along the hull sides, and 3 were stored horizontally in a closed bin under the turret floor. 5,100 rounds of machine gun ammunition were stored in 34 bags, each containing 150 linked rounds, which were both for the hull machine gun and the coaxial. For the German Armaments Ministry, a 75mm cannon, or 7.5cm, was nothing new. In fact, the Panzer IV had had a 75mm cannon on it ever since the beginning. The 7.5-centimeter KWK-37 L-24, the short, stubby-barreled Panzer IV, used this cannon primarily as a close-support artillery gun, as the Panther IV was envisioned more of as a support tank for the infantry rather than a tank hunter, which was the Panzer III's job. This cannon served the Panzerwaffe fine for the first few years of the war, however, again, Once Barbarossa kicked off, it was immediately realized to be too weak for proper tank combat. Its main AP round was the Panzergranate 39-43, sporting a whopping 385 meters per second or 1,260 feet per second muzzle velocity, and a maximum range of 6,200 meters or 20,341 feet. Especially low, even for the contemporaries at the time, the M4 Sherman at 575 meters per second or 1,885 feet per second on the smaller, the shorter cannon, and the T-34-76 at 670 meters per second or 2,200 feet per second in 1941. By June of 1942, however, the new and improved 7.5-centimeter KWK-40, L-43, and L-48 gun had come into service and were quickly being equipped on the Panzer IV, F2 models, and beyond, as well as the Sturmgeschütz III, Stug III for short, assault guns. This long-barreled cannon now boasted a 790 meter per second or 2,592 feet per second muzzle velocity and a 990 meter per second or 3,248 feet per second muzzle velocity for the APCR rounds when available which are comparable to the Panther's cannon, but still, the Panther was a large improvement over this cannon, and in some ways was superior to that of even the Tiger tank's dreaded 88. The APC-BC muzzle velocity was only 800 meters per second, or 2,624 feet per second, and the APCR was 930 meters per second, or 3,051 feet per second, on the Tiger tank meaning the penetrative power of the Panther tank was slightly better, not only due to the muzzle velocity, though that has a large part to do with it, but also the size of the round allowed it to travel further with less air resistance and thus able to penetrate more armor from further away. While comparing the Tiger to the Panther is simply not realistic, because less than 1,500 Tigers were ever built, the Panther was a far more common sight on the battlefield. Considering nearly 6,000 were built in various configurations, the Panther and Tiger were ultimately two very different AFVs with two very different jobs on the battlefield. I just find it interesting to compare their armaments to one another in an effort to shed some light on the Panther itself and how she compared to the other tanks at the time. The KWK-42 was at last the German army's supposed answer to all of the Panzerwaffe's problems. It outperformed all of the preceding weapons available and outgunned most of the enemy's armor with room to spare. In my opinion, this cannon sits near the top of the best, and I'm using that term very loosely, the best cannons produced during the war. And it's hard to find a better one, but we'll try later on in another series. However, back to the KWK-42. The cannon itself, as one can imagine, had quite a lot of recoil, And thus, a baffle was affixed to the muzzle end of the barrel and acted as a muzzle brake. During firing, according to Thomas Yance, roughly 70% of the recoil was absorbed and gases directed out of the sides of this muzzle brake. This component was so important that the gun could not be fired under any circumstances without it. And Panther crews were trained, at least in this regard, because the possibility of catastrophic failure, which could cause great harm to the tank and especially the crew within, it was trained in them that you could not fire this if the baffle was damaged or the barrel was otherwise compromised. It was in the manual. After firing, the breech was cleared of noxious fumes and gases by a compressed air dust extractor, which automatically pushed the air out of the barrel after firing. It should be noted that the early Panther Ds had an inadequate uh, fume extractor which would have to be upgraded a few times before they finally got it right. Those are the main components of what makes the gun go bang. But there are other things to consider on a tank's cannon. Originally, the Panther D models were fitted with a binocular TZF-12 2.5x zoom with a 28-degree field of vision gun sight. Later models would have the TZF, or Termziel Ferner 12A, installed with an extra 5x magnification. Both sights were considered excellent and it must be noted that German optics have always been of superior quality to most contemporaries. The Soviets especially had poor optics during this period of the war. The gun itself was elevated by using the hand crank to elevate the gun from a range of -8 to +20 degrees and could rotate both manually and by hydraulic assist, which on the latter could complete a 360 degree revolution in a minute flat, not particularly fast. Vision inside the turret was fairly limited, as one could imagine, since being inside of the tank was only safe when the people within were well buttoned up and hidden from the outside world. With the exception of the commander, who had all-around vision blocks in the cupola and thus could see in about 360 degrees around the tank itself, the rest of the crew were nearly blind to the outside world. The loader had only a pistol port on his side of the turret, which would require him to open it to see the outside. The gunner, obviously, had the binocular gun sight, but in the Aus d this was only a 2.5x zoom and a limited field of view. Besides that, the gunner also had a pistol port, which could be opened to look out. The driver and radio operator, as discussed earlier, had their own vision blocks and periscopes that they could look through, but even these were limited. The driver could see in front of him, and to the left at sort of a 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock degrees, using the periscope, and the radio operator had only the gun sight through the machine gun, and also a periscope, which would look to about 3 o'clock to 12 o'clock forward. Remember back to episode 1, I had made a comment about German tanks having radios in their tanks to communicate with one tank to another, but also for talking to each other inside of the tank. The Panther Tank was equipped with the Funkgerät 5, or F-U-G-5. Funk is the German word for wireless or radio, and Gerät is the German word for device or thing or tool. Essentially, Funkgerät means two-way radio, or in our case, vehicle radio number five. The F-U-G-5 was the standard piece of radio equipment installed in all Panthers, operating at a range of 27 to 33.3 MHz with a maximum output of 10 watts. The operational range was 2 to 3 kilometers or one one and a quarter to 1.8 miles when using AM and 3 to 4 kilometers or 1.8 to 2.5 miles when using CW or continuous wave. Though as one might imagine, a lot of outside influence could affect that range mountains atmosphere hills trees all of these things could get in the way and reduce and sometimes kind of improve the range of the radio system the radio itself could handle up to 125 channels spaced in 50 kilohertz intervals this radio served two functions the primary function was to allow the radio operator and or commander to communicate with the platoon of Panthers operating together as a unit. By 1943, most, if not all, Allied tanks were operating radios within their tanks for this exact purpose. However, it was the lessons learned from 1939 onward that made it quite clear just how important communication between armored units had become, something the Germans, like the Allies, relied on throughout the war for all of their armored operations. The use of the intercom system, along with the two-way radio, was not unique. But we need to remember, we're talking in 1943 terms of radio technology. This meant that the radio operator was constantly at work as the switchboard operator within the vehicle. Essentially, he was in charge of who heard what. There was incoming radio chatter from external sources, like another Panther tank on the same channel. This feed could be sent to the radio operator, the commander, or both. The other settings that this switch included, the onboard chatter or intercom system. The radio operator could monitor both external two-way as well as the onboard chatter. Same for the commander. The crew members, with the exception of the loader, all had on throat microphones for speaking and headsets for listening. Other modes, including radio silence, where the operator could switch off outgoing external traffic whilst maintaining onboard chatter, so as not to broadcast anything outside of their tank, but still be able to communicate with one another. I know this all seems convoluted, but remember, all of these choices could and would often have to be made in the heat of battle. The radio operator had an integral job within the tank, and failing those responsibilities could jeopardize the entire crew as much as anyone else in the tank's crew. The microphone and headset combo came in two different types. The radio operator and commander had one type, while the other crew members had the other. They were designated as KMF, Kopf microphone, or larynx microphone. There was a type B and a type D. The headsets were designated DFH, Doppelföhnheuer, or double headphones, again type B and D. Depending on your crew position within the tank would determine which set you were issued and used. Externally there was no difference aside from an extra prong on the plug and a marking that would indicate which set you had in your hands. Otherwise, they cosmetically looked, like in photographs, identical. Throat microphones, which were inventions of the Second World War, have certain advantages over conventional microphones in certain situations, such as being inside of a loud mechanical vehicle, like a tank or an airplane throat microphones absorb vibrations directly from the throat and are insensitive to background noise and wind turbulence, whereas boom microphones pick up not only your voice, but anything in the background, much like the microphone I use to record this podcast. Like all things, there are drawbacks to using a throat microphone, such as projecting certain consonants that are formed in the mouth like P, T, F, S, and K, which sometimes made listening quite difficult and stressful. Platoon leader and command tanks were outfitted with extra receivers and more powerful antennas to send and receive communications on another separate command channel, which again was just another thing the radio operator would have to manage and learn how to do in combat. However, as we will discuss later, platoon leaders and command tanks, especially those that had all these extra radios, we're not always in the thick of the fighting, though that was not always the case. We'll discuss Panther variants like the Befehlspanther Panther, or Command Panther, in a later episode. I'm thinking I'll take a few of the oddball and rarities at one time, rather than sprinkling them in here or in other places. I won't be ignoring things like the Panther F, or the Panther 2, or the Burger Panther, so please bear with me. They'll get their day in the spotlight too. I do realize this episode is running longer than the previous episode and it seems we did so without getting much further than we did the last time we're still at the beginning of production but at least now we know what the panther d was all about so we know what the panther d looked like how it measured up to the requirements of wapro 6 we have blueprints that have been approved and the factory lines have been assembling these beasts. what now what's next well We'll have to put a pin in that for now, because I don't want to turn this into a Dan Carlin length episode, and no shade to Mr. Carlin. In fact, he's fantastic, but I don't have the heart to sit in and do a six-hour episode and force you all to listen to it. Instead, we're going to continue this discussion in the next episode, where we will discuss the production of the Panther D, including all of the modifications, which were quite extensive, and I promise we will then get started on the Battle of Kursk. Operation Citadel, and how the new Panther did in its first battle against the Soviet Union, and the lessons learned from the largest engagement of armor ever. All right, folks, thank you for tuning in. And if you like the podcast, please drop us a review or tell a friend, or two, or even three. I do appreciate all of the support I've received so far. And as always, I can be reached with any questions or concerns via email at thepanzerpodcastgmail.com. At Once again, that is thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also now find me on Twitter. My handle is at panzerpodcast. I haven't done a lot of tweeting, but I think I'll be using Twitter to announce episodes, changes, or any sort of news I wish to share with you fine listener folk. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst und mit Rat und mit Tat als mein guter Kamerad. mit.